Okay, we're going to have our Bible reading now. Okay, and today we're going to be reading from Daniel 8. So uh, there are some Bibles around if you want to grab one. And that's page 891 on the Blue Bibles. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabrielle, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the end of the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation that will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. 
When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that have been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Hey, everyone. Um, sorry about the screen. i just give you an update on that, where the school didn't set up everything correctly in here, as you may or may not know, and they've got an AV guy they're employing to look after the whole school, and we're waiting for him, because they won't do anything until he gets comes. Um, they've employed someone, and so we've just got to juggle a few of those things as they happen. So we'll keep going. In God's providence, last week I had a billion slides. This week I've got like two, so that works beautifully. Let me just go into the centre here and um, let me pray and then we're going to have a look at this really interesting uh, passage, right? That was a bit out there. If you're here for the first time, uh, welcome. Um, I hope today you'll be able to see that even though that seemed out there, that it actually does say that God has got something to say to you uh, from this passage today. Whether you're here um, wrestling with what you think of God or whether you're a follower of Jesus, uh, many Uh, in many years of your life. Let me pray and then uh, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can come together this morning uh, and we give you thanks that uh, we can open up your word together, that we can have uh, a bit of soup and fellowship afterwards as well. Um, And we do pray that uh, this very out there vision to our minds, uh, in, in that we will see the big picture of how you see the world and how you see your son ruling. Amen. Now, does anyone... Well, actually, I could ask the question, does anyone read books these days? Do people still like reading books? Yeah, good, okay. <laughs> Gee, that's not many hands. <laughs> right, people like reading books. Does anyone have the temptation to go to the last page of a novel or a book and want to read the end? Oh, look at all of you people putting up your hands. You like to read the end of a book. What is it about reading the last page of a book or the ending? Why do you do it, you cheaters? Why do you do it? Anyone want to volunteer why? Kathy? (laughs) Very good. I want to know if it's got a happy ending. And if it doesn't, then you go, I don't want to read that book. Or do you read it anyway? You keep going. Excellent. We want to know the end, right? And so some of us just want to get there straight away. Just give me the end. And some of us like, no, 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 I want to go on the journey. What's going to happen? We want to know the outcome. But even when you read to know that it's got a happy ending, you don't really know how you get there, right? You, you don't fully understand the ending if you just read the last page of a great book. It's not possible because it's one page and there was a massive story that's taken place. And if you don't read the end of the book, you spend hours, for me, reading any book takes hours and hours and hours because I'm a really slow reader, right? Hours and hours and I don't read the end and I, well, what's the point? It's incomplete. One book that I did amazingly get to the end of many years ago was Lord of the Rings. People read that book? Not many. It's too long. That's right. I, I read it. I'm amazed. I read it. It's a long book, right? And it's a long book. And as you read it, I think the movie was on last night, the first one or something, 
and you read it, and I was reading this section in the book, and it was about what are they going to do with the ring? Uh, what, what do they need to do? And it was this council that they had. And this chapter went on and on. You know, those who have read it, that chapter on the council of Elrond, who's the head elf, it just went on and on with so much detail. I'm thinking, ah, oh, just what? get over it. Just tell me what's going to happen. I much preferred the movie version where that whole chapter that went on forever in the book took a few minutes where they just got together and said, what do we need to do? We've got a ring. We've got to destroy it. Let's go throw it in the, in the um, volcano. Done. I like that sharp ending, right? That's kind of what Daniel does for us with these crazy visions. We have this big picture story. We have lots and lots of detail that we can get lost in. But actually, as we look at some of that detail and see the the, the main points of that detail, we actually get a very clear picture on God's view of the world and its kingdoms and his kingdom. And so what I want to do today is to see if we can have that picture outlined as we look at those crazy visions that Daniel had. And as I said before, if you're visiting here today, uh, it's it's one of the parts of the Bible that's kind of really tricky to understand and all of us are wrestling with it. So don't worry if you don't understand it because a lot of it is challenging for all of us. But what my job is today, and I hope uh, God willing, we'll see that God is actually telling you that he is the one over everything. So let's have a look at seeing how this plays out. Um, if you've got a Bible in front of you on your phone or uh, an actual hard cut, uh, Bible, uh, it would be really helpful to have Daniel 8 open in front of you. Um, you can go and grab a Bible. I think they're around somewhere. Um, feel free to get up. doesn't bother me. But uh, I think that would be helpful. But as we look at this passage, it starts off in verse 1 with the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. And just like the vision of last week, it reminds us that this isn't just some historical timeline story because Belshazzar in, uh, has already died in chapter 5. These visions are pointing uh, to a bigger picture of the world. Daniel isn't just written uh, in, uh, in a chronological timeline. It's a symbolic vision about kingdoms. And how are we going to see this? So how are we going to see which kingdom rules and how it plays out? Well, these visions, Daniel kind of describes himself in verse 2 there. He saw himself in this um, place in the province of Elam, which is about 200 miles outside of Babylon. It kind of becomes part of the big empire, but it's a way away. And he kind of, the vision kind of sees himself in that vision over there, even though he's not physically there. And as he's in this vision seeing what's happening he sees these animals appear verse 3 i looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long now in the bible throughout uh, in the old testament rams and goats are seen as symbols of power and that's kind of what we see how these how these two uh, animals work in, the, in this vision. See, the ram with its horns, what's it do in verse 4? It charges towards the west, uh, to the west and the north and the south, and no other animal, no other power can stand against it. This ram is the boss. It is ruling. It is all-powerful. It is unmatched. You see, 
uh, how it's described in verse 4, just to make it very clear to us. The ram did as it pleased and became great. We've got no idea at this point what's going on. That's okay, hang with me. But this ram could do whatever it wanted. It could treat people with disdain, it could destroy people, it ruled, it had power and it was described as great, which is important because we'll see what happens in a moment. And what we've just started to see and now we've got a picture, a symbolic picture of power and conflict. Not something that's uncommon to the world today, it's all these thousands of years later, power and conflict is still the thing we wrestle with in the world today. And all the nations are still wrestling with power and conflict. We wrestle with it in our jobs. Power and conflict on a global scale, on a kingdom scale, is what we've got in front of us. But as soon as we hear about its unmatched power, we don't then get a massive story on what this power looks like. Because in verse 5, Daniel's thinking about this. And I imagine he was thinking and kind of a bit freaked out, as he has been uh, said previously. As I was thinking about this, suddenly... A goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It comes from the west, crossing the whole earth. And what becomes explicitly clear a little bit later on, is what actually is is, um, reasonably obvious here as well, is that this goat, this uh, powerful uh, animal is representing the the kingdom of Alexander the Great. He comes, and we'll see a little bit later when it's absolutely identified as that, that he destroys the ram who could do whatever he wanted. At this point, he is the greatest of all time. He is the goat. This kingdom rules. He attacked furiously. He shattered the horns, the symbol of power on the ram, And he became, look at verse 8. The ram was great, the goat, very great. His kingdom is even bigger, more expansive, more powerful. He went much further into the world and his rule was massive. But then at a side point, at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place were four prominent horns that grew up toward the four winds of heaven if you know your alexander the great history as i'm sure all of you do know it so beautifully well um alexander died of a fever at the height of his power just got sick and died and his kingdom was broken up to his four generals and they didn't do a very good job and then the kingdom was gone And so we've got these two powerful kingdoms. But we get a little bit more of a description. And this is kind of where it gets even a little bit trickier. In verse 9, out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. So just like in chapter 7 when we saw um, the horn come up uh, out of the other, other horns, we see something like this happen here. And this horn is a greater symbol than the ram and the goat. Because in verse 11, it doesn't just say it's great, 
It says, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. So not only did it just look at the people and go, I can do whatever I want with you. It intentionally looked at God's people and against God and set themselves up to take them out. And the way they did that was by destroying everything that belonged to the way the people related to God. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. His sanctuary was thrown down. They had no way of relating to God, God's people, because the way you did that was in God's presence in the sacrificial system they had, and it just destroyed it. Everything this horn did, conquered. And it, and it threw truth to the ground. Now, unlike the, the ram and the goat, which we'll find out we have explicitly clear exactly what it was, uh, who they are, and we'll see that in a moment, we, we aren't clearly articulated who this might be. But it's one time where it seems everyone's uh, pretty confident and unanimous in their thinking that actually there's so many parallels to the ruler who you probably haven't heard of, because you all probably have heard of Alexander the Great in some way, right? Yeah, it's, it's a common... There's movies made about him. But who's heard of Antiochus IV? Yeah, yeah thanks, Thema. You're preaching on him next week. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, any, anyone else? Yeah, Peter's preached on it. Luke's preached, probably looked at it, preached on it. But it's not, it's not someone in just history we know about him. But he was a big deal. And what he did, he came up and he attacked God's people, the Israelites, and he, he took away their daily sacrifices and he stopped how they related to God. And he prospered greatly. And one of the strategies that he had was, is that anyone who had the truth, as, as the Jews saw it, the Torah, their, their special books, you know, the first five books of the Bible, that they would destroy as many of them as they could find. And if someone had possession of it, what do you think they did to the people who had possession of it? They killed them. And so this horn prospered in everything it did, and the truth was thrown to the ground. The Torah was destroyed. Now, we know this history because, um, just as a bit of a side point, but what's interesting is we have God's Word, but there are, there's a section of history that we don't consider as God's Word, but it's actually um, good historical books called the Apocrypha, which is kind of uh, sets a lot of the period in between uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And while we don't consider it as God's, God's Word, they give us a good, good bit of history. And in one of those books in Maccabees, this is kind of played out in this, this horrible way that the, the Jews were um, dealt with and, and attacked. And it seems to be that this could be what's being talked about. But in any case, we don't need to rest everything on it because the big picture is clear, isn't it? There's kingdom after kingdom that comes. They're going to get more powerful, more powerful, and they think they all can rule over everything, including God. So what happens? you got this vision of kingdoms ruling and then Daniel kind of has another abrupt scene where he kind of sees people having a conversation, the end of the conversation in verse 13. Have a look. Then I heard a holy one speaking and, a, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes des desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. How long will this all keep going on for? 
And he said, a very helpful phrase, which I'm sure, like me, you think, yeah, that clears it all up. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. You see, Daniel's heard in his vision that the success of all these kingdoms is going to be short-lived. It's going to be short-lived. It doesn't seem like it. But it's not going to last forever. And the picture of the 2,000 evenings and mornings, which I'm not going to go into all the details of that and, and trying to figure all that out, because I don't think we need to to see the big picture of what's happening in Daniel today. But I think th- those numbers are saying that they've got a fixed period and then it's going to end. And that plays out in verses 15 to 17, I think. But you see, what happens is, while Daniel was watching the vision in verse 15, an angel comes along, an angel Gabriel, which interestingly, the only place in the, uh, in the, in the New T- Old Testament where angels are named is in Daniel. And Gabriel uh, tells the meaning of the vision. And just before he does that, when you enter into the presence of God and his messengers, which happens throughout the Bible, it's like, I can't be in this holy presence. What happens to Daniel in verse 17? He came near the place where I was standing. I was terrified and fell prostrate. Just kind of fell down. The Son of Man was, uh, uh, he was told um, by uh, the Gabriel, Son of Man, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. He's like, I want you to see what's going on here. But Daniel was in a deep sleep, it says in verse 18, and his face was to the ground. And so the angels kind of touched him and he got up to his feet to say, no, no, you really need to hear this bit. Okay? Like if you just read the uh, end of uh, the Lord of the Rings saga and, uh, and you saw that final scene where they sail off into the sunset, you would have missed the big end of the story just because you looked at the very end daniel needs to see this is the bit that you need to understand to get the big picture of everything and he said in verse 19 i'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the visions concerns the appointed time of the end so what's happening is daniel as we know if you've been coming uh uh, previous weeks and, if, and if, uh, to get you up to speed God's people are in exile in Babylon facing great persecution and suffering and Daniel's thinking how long is this going to take place and, and uh, Stephen next week when he preaches on chapter 9 that's the question that's asked and Daniel prays about it. how long O oh Lord that question is on their, on their minds on, on Daniel's mind when is all this going to end God's people are facing wrath from all these nations And we see here what will happen later in the time of wrath. What's going to happen at the end of all of this? And so these visions you saw, Daniel, the ram is is Cyrus, the king of Media and Persia. And then the shaggy goat is the king of Greece. So if it wasn't clear, it became very clear to us. And, And the large horn between its eyes is the first king the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power those generals who took over alexander the great they didn't get to rule like he did this whole time where god's people are struggling 
it describes the time of wrath and it's kind of how Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 picture all the kingdoms in rebellion against God. You see, this is all somehow about the end. It's somehow about how God is in charge of everything. And so, at the end, where Antiochus is, is uh, the one who causes most destruction as the horn, we read in verse 23, he was completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue. He, he's the one who's going to arise. He's very strong. He succeeds in everything he does, like every other kingdom. He goes against the Jews. But what's really interesting, have a look. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. At the height of all these kingdoms is arrogance. And Antiochus himself setting himself up against God as unstoppable. See how it goes on to say in verse 25, when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against God, the prince of princes. See, the picture is that Daniel is being shown in a really interesting way. You are facing a time of destruction. God's people are in a bad place. There's kingdom after kingdom is coming and ruling and setting themselves up against God. But then have a look how it ends in verse 25. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The whole point is to see what doesn't look necessarily clearly if you're living in something and you can't see the bigger picture that despite who's in charge, despite how wicked they may be, despite the fact that that wickedness that's being brought upon you because of the way that uh, God's people have rejected me, Daniel, which uh, uh, we'll see more next week, I am in charge. See, they're all destroyed and it's not by human power. And that's a big idea that's playing out in this chapter. That when it comes to people being in charge at the height of their arrogance and superiority, God's, God's like, you're not better than me. <laughs> I'm the Lord of all. I think it's really interesting how um, this pattern is actually played out in history beyond the Bible even. Um, I was reading this week that there was a, a, a religious analysis of history by a historian named Butterfield back in 1949 and he looked at all the kingdoms and the nations that rule and everything and what happens? Every nation and kingdom and superpower that falls, they fall heaviest when they think or act like God and they fly in direct contrast to God's providence in history when they see their victory in their own strength that's the point when they fall was his um, uh, paper uh, journal paper that he wrote to argue that you can see this traced out through history which is really interesting but it's a religious argument in 1989 a secular argument not a religious uh, 
perspective. The, oh, I didn't write his name down here, which is poor of me, but the, uh, the, the guy who wrote this secular analysis in 1989, he did the same thing. And what he traced out was that all the nations and kingdoms that rise and fall, it's when they're arrogant and when they exploit others and they're overly self-confident, that's when they suffer and collapse. That's the trend. And it's this pattern that plays out through history. A pattern that the book of Proverbs, a book that's all about the patterns of wisdom in the world, in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so even when we don't see the bigger picture, God is saying, I'm giving you a vision so that you can see the bigger picture. I know nations are rebelling against me. I know time after time kingdoms are saying, I'm just like God, like Nebuchadnezzar in the early chapters of Daniel, like Belshazzar himself. But the big picture is, they will fall. And so this gives Daniel in this context some sense of hope, even though it's a hope that's for the future. What do we do with all of this? Well, I've tried to help you see this uh, picture in a little bit of a diagram that will come up on the screen now, hopefully. Yes, excellent. See, so what you have, you know how this is in the time of Belshazzar? He's like a pattern, a foreshadowing of what happens, and it happens every time. You've got Belshazzar, and when we read that in chapter 5, he was mighty and powerful. And what happened to him? Well, he was so arrogant and so full of pride that uh, Babylon was ruling under his reign and how great he was. He took all the, the things from the temple that they ransacked, and he used them, he desecrated them, and he used them for his own um, whims as a way of showing how great and awesome he was. And at the height of his pride, he literally was judged by a hand of God, wasn't he? In that crazy vision where, um, if you remember, there was a hand writing on the wall, Belshazzar, you're going to die and you're going to be judged. And then he was killed. It's kind of like a pattern. This vision happened in his reign and it's kind of like the foreshadowing pattern of what happens. The ram, the, the kingdom of media Persia, did as it pleased and became great and had massive expansion. But Cyrus's kingdom that he established collapsed in three years. Alexander the Great turns up on the scene. The, the goat, the greatest of all time, becomes very great, biggest expansion in history. And at the height of his power, as I said, he dies and his four generals never regain the power. And then this... Uh, mighty horn uh, if it's Antiochus the fourth he attacks God's people so not only is he great it's purposely highlighting he's attacking God's people sets himself up against God and God destroys him can you see the pattern that's being pictured well we might not understand all the details we can see here there's this increasing expression of rebellion but God is not just going to let it continue on you see, with this picture, we actually have, I think, another, another line or another table that we need to add. Because for Daniel, this would have given him comfort when he's thinking, how is this going to happen, God? When is this going to continue? But for, 
for us today, this vision is linked back to the chapter 7 vision. Because not only do we have these animals, at the end, we see that God's victory comes because the Son of Man is depicted as another hybrid animal. Have a look at the screen, the next picture. The lion and the lamb. The Son of Man, who we saw last week in chapter 7, is Jesus coming to rule, is described in another vision of the end in Revelation, using the same way that Daniel uses uh, imagery, to describe the one who always rules as a lion and a lamb on the throne. And this picture is great. Why? Because he, the Son of Man come, coming on the clouds bring, brings God's people back to God. He brings God's people back to God because he is one who can rule. Let me just give you a little insight in Revelation chapter 5. Just two verses of chapter 5 of this, uh, um, of this uh, vision of the end. See, what happened was in chapter 1, it described that the, the Son of Man's coming on the clouds, as in Daniel, he's going to rule and reign. But who's going to be able to give people access back to God? And the way it's described, he's opening a scroll. Who's going to give people access? And in verse 5 of chapter 5, uh, then one of the elders said to me, and so this time it's John seeing the vision, not Daniel. And he says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and, and its seven seals. The lion, the powerful imagery of a lion who rules, who reigns, is on the throne. But the amazing thing with imagery like this is that it can kind of change at the same time. Because then, in verse 6, Six, as he's looking, and what he would think be looking at a lion, verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne. You see, the reason all these kingdoms fail is because they're not God's kingdom. And the reason all these kingdoms fail is because they're evil, wicked, built on pride and arrogance. The eternal kingdom with the lion, lamb on the throne is a kingdom built on humility, on sacrifice, as God himself dies in our place to bring us into this kingdom. Not in prideful arrogance treating all of humanity with disdain and destruction and evil and wickedness. No, seeing humanity's wickedness and evil and saying, I will deal with that so that you can be new and that you can be with me. The visions of Daniel and the hopeless, although for a short period, very powerful kingdoms fall into insignificance when we see this kingdom. The Son of Man coming on the clouds to the throne as a triumphant lion 
who brings you and I into this kingdom through his sacrificial death, a death he did not deserve. He will never be destroyed. There's no kingdom coming up that can rise against it because they're all trying and the best they did was kill him. But the beautiful picture of the Bible, the paradox of it all, is their best attempt in their height of arrogance is to, to, kill, the lamb, to kill the lamb was his victory where he gives us life. And so he'll never be destroyed and the picture of the end is everyone worshipping him. This is why it's worth us spending time reflecting on these visions even though it's kind of out there. Because what we're hearing today is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to this kingdom. And no matter what's going on in your life right now, this side of this kingdom being fulfilled, this is where you're heading. And it's a wonderful picture. And I want to challenge you and ask you to consider... Is it worth your consideration to follow this king? The one who is willing not to rule you with an iron fist, but to go before you in your place and die on the cross for you. God himself today may be saying, you don't need to be part of kingdoms that are going to fall. He may be saying to you today, Jesus has died for you so that you can be with him into all eternity. And it's not about you becoming mighty and powerful, it's about you humbly saying, you're my Lord and I trust in you. You can do that today. You can maybe at least wrestle with it more. Seek a friend, uh, talk to myself, uh, and, and figure out more about... Is Jesus this king I should follow? Because I think as we finish today with some reflections on how we take this away for all of us, we live in light of Daniel's vision in two ways. I think it's in there on your outline, but I just want to highlight that both points are because God does not lose ever, even when it looks like it. When the latest comedian says God is dead or is at least evil or wicked. When a government says there is no religion in this country because we're communist. When um, uh, a friend says to you, I am my own God. God is still on the throne. Jesus still died and rose from the dead and he's coming back. And so if God does not lose, if that picture of revelation that we've just had a little glimpse of today is real, I want you to go away with two things today. I want you to recommit to perseverance. See, if God does not lose, his people persevere. You see, perseverance is doing something despite difficulty, even when success might be delayed. But we know that God's promise of success for our lives is not in 
physical blessings now or in how things are going to work out necessarily, even if we do get um, great blessings now. Our success is the eternal glory and kingdom with God that he has done for us. And if you have that end in sight, you can press on. When you have assurances of the outcome, you can press on. When you know God's justice, real justice is the outcome, you can press on. And persevering as a Christian is not meant to be easy. It's meant to be refining. It's meant to be humbling as we live before our great God and King. The Bible speaks so much on perseverance. Have you noticed that? Because we live this side of heaven, of the new creation. And so we continue on and press on as our task. What challenges, I wonder, you can consider in your own life from the other kingdoms. There are other ways impact on your ability to persevere. What is it that the times when you find it hardest to keep going in your faith? When you feel like you don't belong to the people around you, in your workplace, in your social uh, spheres, in in whatever place it is, you just feel so out of place because sometimes we can feel like that. When beliefs are changing all around you and you're hearing that, no, God wants us to continue to see Jesus as Lord and live the way that he declares... And it's hard to persevere and you want to start to change the way that you choose to live. Or is it just more personal self-identity that when life gets tough, when things don't work out, let's be, let's be honest, probably all of us in this room at some point, at least for a moment and probably a lot more, have thoughts of thinking we're useless when things aren't working out. All of us. I'm going to make that bold statement and I don't think anyone will challenge me on that. Because we do, don't we, in our deepest, darkest moments. Sometimes we articulate them out loud. But are we useless if God has decided to bring us into his kingdom through his sacrifice for us and we have that hope of the future? Or is that a lie that we let uh, persist in our own minds and affect our ability to persevere? Or is it just because... I look around and I think, I can't find the good times in my life. They're just not around. It's just too hard. Things aren't good. I'm not happy. All the other kingdoms want is for you to see that the happiness is found in their way. In your own selfish ambition. In doing whatever you can to get ahead to seeking the now pleasure instead of the future pleasure. What are the challenges that impact on you persevering? Because brothers and sisters, God does not lose. So we are called to persevere. And secondly, and lastly today, God does not lose. Surely, We should go away today with great comfort. 
extraordinary comfort. See, comfort is when your well-being is eased. When maybe grief or distress or something is being eased in your life. Surely, as God's people, knowing this picture of the end and the heartache and distress of its heart living in this world, we have greater comfort than anything else. You know, it's what, um, it's what uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. It's one of my favorite verses. It's so simple in the way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Why is he the God of all comfort? Because he's the one who reigns for all time and he was going to bring us into that all time reality. He is there for us. He eases our distress. You see, God's people are comforted by what God has done to bring them into the kingdom. No one can take that away from you if you love Jesus. Does that give you a sense of relief, joy, even when you're not feeling particularly happy today? Today you may be just having a rubbish day and you may be feeling tough. But if you see this, you can, you can also have a sense of joy and comfort knowing no matter how I'm feeling, how I'm thinking, uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, the kingdom has never been taken away from me. The king of all these rebellious kingdoms wants you to think that God isn't comforting you. You see, God's people are comforted by knowing, not that just the God's brought them into the kingdom, but he's brought them into the kingdom that is eternal. We're brought into a kingdom that will last forever. We get to live it now, but we get to live it in perfection for all eternity. You see, whatever dissatisfaction you have with life that maybe you considered before when we're talking about perseverance, you can be comforted to know that it ends. There is eternity. And this eternity isn't unsatisfactory. I think this is a really important point that I, I constantly need to remind myself of. Is you and I are not going to get into the new heavens and the new creation and look around and go, hmm, I thought it was going to be a little bit better than this. I thought in my best mind that, you know what, it would be better. The best moments you have now in this life will not be as good. That is the promise that God has given us. It's an eternity with no tears, pain and suffering. With no one to mock you, no one to mistreat you, no one to belittle you and no one including yourself to do those things to yourself. We are comforted by knowing God's kingdom is eternal. And lastly, I had here, if I had time to say it, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Because of this, God's people comfort one another. Now, in that great uh, passage in 2 Corinthians of comfort, I didn't finish it. See, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, does anyone know what it says next? So, so that we can, tr- we can comfort others. 
We don't want to go, okay, God, give me, all, give me all your love. Give me all your ease and pain. I'll just think about eternity. And then I'll go hide in a cupboard and just embrace that. We're supposed to look around at the people in this room and comfort them in their troubles and distress. We're supposed to care for each other. We want to be a people who don't just think, I need to be comforted. We want to be a people who think, as God comforts me, who can I get alongside and comfort? Is that your conviction? Wouldn't it be great if we did that a whole lot better? Wouldn't it be great when people in life outside of us who don't know Jesus are in great distress and trouble and we get alongside them and and help them with what their needs are, whether it's just being there with them in their pain and distress, giving them some physical needs and help. But we share with them, and you know what, despite all of this, what you need is that God is saying to you, he has your ultimate comfort waiting for you in heaven. Shouldn't that be who we are? Because brothers and sisters... God does not lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you great thanks that we can see that no matter what happens in this world, the bigger picture is that you always are in charge. Help us to be a people who rest in your comfort, persevering in your ways, always. Amen.